Hello, and welcome to Chad's ADHD 365 podcast. Hello, and welcome to ADHD 365. I'm Susan Booning, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Narissa Bauer, a behavioral pediatrician. Good afternoon, and welcome. Dr. Bauer, can you tell us a little about yourself? I'd be happy to, and thank you so much for having me on today. I am Dr. Narissa Bauer. I'm a behavioral pediatrician and creator of Teach Me ADHD. I am in Carmel, Indiana, and I am fortunate enough to have a private practice part-time, and then I do other education to help promote family understanding so that they can thrive and have fun living with ADHD. Wonderful. And our topic today is helping teens and tweens with ADHD to self-advocate. Practicing self-advocacy enables teens to participate in the decisions that affect their lives and receive what they need to succeed. It's essential to begin preparing them to self-advocate even before adolescence. However, how can parents and caregivers foster an environment that encourages children with ADHD, let's say from the tween years through the teen years, to be self-advocates? At what age or developmental stage should they start? One, I think every parent thrives for because we want to see our children be able to navigate life and be ready to launch when it's time to do so. And as a behavioral pediatrician, I think it is really important to engage children in this conversation as early as possible. Now, I know you said, Susan, tweens to teens, but I love to talk to kids as early as preschool years about what is going on whenever I see them in clinic. I want them to not be afraid of talking to me about and visiting my office to share what's happening at home and school. So I think some of the necessary components to help kids, no matter what age, learn to self-advocate is number one, giving them the education they need the knowledge in child-friendly terms. And number two is giving them the space and invitation to voice what is on their mind so you can explore that together. How important is it for children and teens with ADHD to learn about ADHD? How can understanding their ADHD help them to self-advocate? And how can understanding their own strengths and their challenges be helpful to them? And how can they learn to communicate and self-advocate about these? So that is a long list of skills there that we want our kids to be able to do. So whenever we learn a new skill, obviously practice is the key. And giving children the opportunity to continue to practice, ask questions, invite them to reflect on what you just provided them information-wise so that you know that they understand and modeling to them that it is okay and expected that they will share their opinion every time you see them and want to talk to them about it. Because I want kids so much to understand that having ADHD is not a disability. It is a part of them. It is a brain-based condition, and it's what makes them unique. And if we can approach it in a way that encourages self-reflection, conversation, and communication about it and learning, kids are going to be much more open to 
trying to understand, having that buy-in. And I actually tell them, I want you to understand why we're here today. And every time you come back to see me, we're going to talk about how things are going. And so I always like to start off with basic education aimed at the child while the parent is listening so that they can also learn how to best communicate with their children should they have questions or concerns. And even being friendly for the ADHD brain, not only just talking to the child at their level, but using visuals. Like I have a brain model. I do a lot with pictures and drawings and presenting that information in a way that is child-friendly, but then waiting to see how do they respond? Do they look like they're concerned? Do they have questions? And then using their cues, both verbal and nonverbal, as a way to help me understand where they are. But I think as parents and providers, if we can encourage our children to know that we value their opinion, that just naturally helps them to learn how to advocate for themselves because we've given them the space to offer what they're thinking and feeling. Thank you. So how about the children and teens who struggle with social anxiety or with communication difficulties? How can a parent help them to build skills they need to cope with those challenges so they'll be able to advocate for themselves? It's really important, I think, whenever I see families in the office, that we understand at any point in time how the child is functioning at home and school. And so if that child really has debilitating social anxiety, we need to come up with a care plan that addresses not only the symptom severity, but giving them the opportunity to practice skills that they're going to need. Now, as a pediatrician, I can prescribe medication. And yes, that is one of the tools in the toolbox, but pills don't teach skills. And I often tell families at the same time that while medication may be an option for your child at this point in time. The medicine is not automatically going to help your child know exactly what to say in every scenario and the anxiety will go away. So I think part of this journey that families need is to understand the expectations, what the care plan entails, and then also helping teens not be afraid, especially when it comes to anxiety that often runs hand in hand with ADHD, but helping them understand, first of all, that anxiety serves a purpose, a biologic purpose, and everybody feels anxiety from time to time. I often like to tell kids that anxiety is akin to a smoke detector in the house. Smoke detector, what is that for? It keeps us safe. How do we know? What is its function? Well, it detects smoke or a fire. And if it does, it makes a loud sound so that we can run out of the house and make sure everybody escapes from imminent danger. And I like to explain to kids that the amygdala is the same thing, but it's the emotion processing center. And especially for anxiety, a child needs to understand what sets off their smoke detector. And in this case, with a teen with social anxiety, those social situations. So I think, first of all, by explaining at the most basic level so that they can understand by relating it to something they already know can help them understand it, but also not be as scared about it. It serves a purpose. I don't ever want that teen who has social anxiety to feel embarrassed or guilty or ashamed of the fact that they're feeling this. In fact, I want them to tune in to what they're feeling so that they can understand what their body's trying to tell them. And so we talk through and help them understand what the triggers are, 
where do you feel this? Where are you feeling it? Like, what are the situations that sets off your alarm? And what are you feeling it? Where are you feeling? It? Are you feeling constriction in your throat? Like you're going to throw up? Are you feeling dizzy? Are your palms sweaty? Again, that's how your alarm is alerting you to some imminent danger that you perceive as a threat so that you can be ready. And I think in explaining this to kids, helping them understand and see those trends. First of all, knowledge is power. So hopefully they can be like, okay, this is just my alarm bell going off. I've talked about this before with my doctor, my therapist. I know what it's trying to do and now I can do my coping strategies. But I think part of it is just building, first of all, that self-awareness through the education so that way they don't feel badly and don't start to begin to have this negative self-concept about like, well, why, why can't I get this right? Why do I always feel this way? Nobody else is feeling this way. And so again, helping them with that understanding along with then giving them practice and specific tools like scripts even. So that way when they're in the middle of feeling and their thinking brain goes offline for a little bit, they can fall back on a script to start moving through the paces and then have something to fall on so that eventually that thinking brain will catch up to them and be like, oh yeah, okay, I've got this. This is just the anxiety again, but I know exactly what I can do. But with anything, it practice, 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 strengthening those neural connections and then really giving each child the empowerment to know like, boy, that was really challenging and I didn't like how it felt, but I was able to do it. And that's the key. Let's talk for a moment about those teens who have ADHD, who have IEPs. The IDEA requires that students age 14 or older must be invited to attend their IEP meeting, but it doesn't require them to attend the meeting. Can teens benefit from attending their IEP meetings? First of all, sometimes when I meet families in the office with ADHD, I mean, that is an abbreviation too, just as with anything along the journey, parents and kids alike are going to be exposed to lots of different and new situations. So when you say, oh, it's time for the school, we're going to talk to the school and get a 504 IEP in place, kids their reaction. I'm watching their reaction. And if they're like, what is that? Then I'm like, okay, we have some work to do here to educate you so that you can understand what's happening. And then you have the choice to be a voice for yourself. But again, I think one is always taking a step back, making sure everybody at the table understands what the purpose is, what is the objective of that, what is the reason. And I think it's always a good opportunity to invite the child in so that they have some working knowledge of what goes on behind the doors. I don't want them to feel like a separate part of the team. They are part, they're the central part of this team. And at least allowing them to sit and be present helps cultivate that awareness that this is important for them and then encourages them to be able to learn how to speak up and to share what they think they need and what's working and what's not. I love to tell kids all the time that if I had a magic wand or a way to download their thoughts and feelings, we would be great, but we don't have that. And so it is essential to help kids and teens to feel comfortable to share what they're thinking and feeling because that's really the only way they can get the help that they need. So how can parents prepare their teens 
or when that time comes to attend their education meetings? And what specific skills, what specific strategies can parents help them to learn to prepare them for the experience in terms of both developing and practicing these self-advocacy skills when they go into that setting? Well, again, I think going through ahead of time and telling them what to expect, who's going to be in the room, the purpose for the meeting, and then inviting your teen to think about, and you can even make notes on a paper, pros and cons, what's working well this year and what's not working as well. What do you think you might need for help? And what are things that have been tried that don't really work or suggestions that have been made that don't seem to work and whatnot? Again, because I think the key here to remember is that at an IEP meeting, the stage is set not just for the parent, but for the child to give their feedback, give their opinions on what they need. And again, because the teen is really the only person who truly knows what they need in the moment, it's really going to help empower them to self-reflect while building that executive function, to plan, organize your thoughts, take some good notes, and then thinking back and having insight into what's worked and what hasn't and why. But again, I think taking that time to prepare with that in mind, and some kids don't want to sit and take notes or... But it's if you at least have that conversation, 10, 15 minutes, like, what do you think's been going well the past year? What have you noticed about your classes? What is hard about school? What's easy about school and why? Why do you think that? And if your child already has some accommodations in place, asking them, have you had to take advantage of stepping out to take a test in another room? Or do you even remember that you had that in place? What other accommodations has the teacher suggested? And let's review those. Are you even using those? Do you even remember you could do that? Are you making use of those things? Because then again, that'll just help them mentally prepare for the conversation and then inviting them to think about those things so that they're ready to communicate that to the school. So whether or not a child with ADHD has an IEP or a 504 plan, not every student with ADHD does. How can they learn to identify their needs in a classroom and then advocate for those needs themselves? What are some ways that parents can support a child so that they will be able to do this in the classroom and elsewhere? My goal with any family on this journey from the initial diagnosis to ongoing treatment and maintenance is that the family remember that this is a moving target, so to speak. You know, a plan that you may make initially upon diagnosis is something that we have to revisit every year. And that gives the family an opportunity to revisit how are things going. So the way that I think parents can help prepare their child is to have regular conversations about how ADHD is affecting them at home and school. What are the things that they love about having ADHD? What are some of the things that make it more challenging for them? And then together thinking about, okay, well, what do you think you can do about that? What help do you think you might need? Is that something that I can help with, the teacher? What strategies have we tried? What do you think went well? What didn't go well? What are you willing to try again? Because I think that the conversation always needs to start with the fact that We need to recognize ADHD is never an excuse. It's an explanation. Inviting our children to self-reflect on what's going well and what's not going well so that together we can figure out 
another course correction. And as kids grow, school gets harder naturally because their brains are growing and you need to learn. And that executive function really stresses the frontal lobes. And so it's really important to every school year, use that opportunity as you're getting ready to go back to school. Use that as an opportunity to carve out time when you're maybe having a family dinner, talking about what to expect for the school year. What are your dreams? What are your hopes? What are your goals? How can I help support you? And then maybe at mid-year during winter break, that's another natural place to sit down and have those conversations. What's going well? How are things going? What else do you think you might need? And again, those conversations modeled at home help your child understand how important it is to become self-aware, know that their opinion is valuable, and help them to start kind of thinking through with you what it is they might need. You might not have all the answers, but at least gives them the ability to formulate an opinion. So that way, when you do engage the doctor, the school, the therapist, and the rest of the people on the team, that you're all on the same page. So we always want to let kids know, even from the youngest age, as they get older, that our involvement will be there. As parents, we really still want to foster that ongoing autonomy and independence as they get older. And the only way to do that is by steadily having frequent check-ins, but also inviting them as they're capacities are available to be able to have that practice with you to have those conversations, those meaningful conversations. So you can make do with all those everyday learning moments to reinforce what you want your child to learn. And of course, sometimes that can get very challenging when they get into the adolescent years and teen years. Do you have any suggestions for when that gets challenging? Yes, yes, of course, because you might get also the eye roll or mom, gosh, we keep talking about this, right? But in all of that, the most important thing is connection, connection, connection. That's the first rule of anything if you want to have ongoing communication. And so I think the biggest thing is in the moment, especially if you and your child are kind of butting heads or not seeing eye to eye or your child just isn't motivated to talk about it right then, it's okay. Just say, okay, I get it. Now is not the right time. I'd love to make a date to have the time to actually sit down and talk with you about this. So let me know. When would be a good time? I wouldn't say parents don't back down. It's important to have those communication and those discussions with your child. It just might not be at this moment. And you need to be okay with that, right? Especially as they get older. And a lot of parents, they're used to the chatty child when they pick them up from school. And now all of a sudden they're grunting or they're just like, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, <laughs> I'm in that stage too. And it can be a little put off and you're like, oh my gosh, he used to talk to me so much. And now I'm just getting one word answers. But I think the key here is that they're still listening. They truly understand that you are in their corner. It's just that we have to adapt our communication styles and change and go with the flow as our kids grow too. Definitely. Are there similarities to how a child or a tween or a teen can advocate for themselves among peers and among adults or authority figures? If so, what are they and what are the differences? To tackle that, I think for just keeping my thought process and I make sure I answer the whole question, Thinking about young children, again, helping them at a young age formulate what it is for them to have ADHD. And again, 
you heard me say this already, making sure in our communication with our children that ADHD is never an excuse. It explains some things, but it's not a crutch and it's not an excuse. So helping children understand how ADHD affects them at home and school. So I actually sit down and have that discussion like, gosh, I heard today that it was a little bit of a struggle for you. Tell me more about that. Having those honest conversations, having them head on, the length of time may change with how long you might have these conversations developmentally with your child. But I think it's still a valid and a good idea if you're having a lot of reports of troubles at school or you heard about an incident on the bus that you think about how you're going to approach your child in a way that invites communication and problem solving rather than like, oh my gosh, I heard again from your teacher that this happened. So why do you always get in trouble? That's just going to put anybody on the defensive. So again, taking time to process your own feeling before you go into that two-way communication with your child, no matter what age. And then also being mindful of becoming a detective. I think that's like the easiest thing that for parents to understand. That's one of the things that I teach the kids in my course. We're at the All Deeds Help Detective Agency and we learn about ADHD, just the facts. We never want to jump to conclusions. And if parents can remember to put that detective hat on whenever they encounter a road bump or a challenge, rather than responding with a lot of emotion first, which I know is hard, parents, I know. But if you can kind of just be like, So tell me more about why this happened. I heard this from the teacher or I got this email. I'd love to know what happened there because I wasn't there. Can you explain to me what happened? With no shame, no judgment, I'm just trying to gather facts. And again, I think that just puts the child at ease to know that, all right, let's just talk about it and see what happened and where we can go from there. If I hopefully I answered your question, but based on the developmental age, always having those conversations with your children, the length of time may change, the timing may change, or like how in-depth you go. But I think it's so important to start those conversations and even just ask, like, what do you think happened there, buddy? Like, it was really hard for you to keep your hands to yourself or it was hard for you to like stay still and not, you know, move around, wasn't it? Huh? Does it happen all the time? Go with the flow. Be child-focused is what I'm trying to say. And they're always our children, whatever yes. developmental stage they're in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so calling them a child, even when they're a teen, it's uh, so relatable. But then what about in encouraging them to self-advocate with their peers? Yes. And of course, that becomes much more intense and important to them as teens. And it definitely starts in the tween years and sometimes even earlier that the peers are so important. But If you suspect or if you're aware that maybe they're having some difficulty with peers, what can parents do to encourage them to self-advocate there too? I think as with anything, encounter, like I said, a speed bump or a road bump, getting the facts, understanding the context, and then really understanding your child's perspective, their thoughts, their feelings, and then their actions in that situation. And if for some reason they made not a good choice with their action or with what they say to their friends, exploring that, like, how do you think you could have communicated that in a little bit a different way. Obviously, what you told me, you were feeling embarrassed or jealous or disappointed. Trying to help understand the feeling and helping them understand that feeling. Because for instance, anger is just an emotion that is so complex. It can come out in lots of different ways. And when we have these 
discussions with our children to kind of tease apart what was really going on there? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? It can help them understand that how they think and how they feel can lead to actions, sometimes not great actions, but then we can take a step back, rewind the tape and be like, okay, if we could do a do-over, what do you think you could have done differently? Or how do you think you could have said that differently? And then giving them that opportunity to self-reflect, practice with you, again, with a script, sometimes some kids need that. Or thinking about, well, like, okay, I get it, but I don't even know how to bring it up. Like, how should I, how should I talk to my friend? Like, I don't know. Don't you think she's going to think I'm whining or, you know, whatever. But that is when you have your child asking you those questions, that's showing number one, they're understanding that communication is a two-way street. They're respecting the fact that there is a relationship there that they want to preserve. And then number three is they're actually asking for help from you now. So, okay, well, let's see. What do you think? You know, and you could play with that a little bit. Walk me through your day. Like, do you think that she'd be open to you, like writing her a note and slipping that in to invite her to like come over so that you guys can have some quiet time together without all the distractions of people in the hallway and other friends around? You guys can just kind of reconnect and, and just talk about it in less pressured situations. You can kind of problem solve and brainstorm with your child in lots of different ways. But the only way that you can really truly help your child understand understand what they can do with their peers is to really try to first help them explain the context to you as much as possible and then invite them in that problem solving process, which is also a very critical life skill and help them think through, well, if this, then this, or if this, then this. Oh, well, so when do you think you're going to tell her this? When do you think you're going to start that conversation? How do you think you can do this? What can I do to help facilitate that? Should we have them over? Again, just showing them that you're interested and inviting them to think through that. I mean, sometimes that mental preparation can be helpful and then sometimes role-playing it with them too. But anytime you have a chance to let your child take that step and do it for themselves first, they may fail, they may stumble, but it's such an important learning opportunity to prove to themselves that they can do it. That goes nicely into my next question, because we know that there are going to be times when they're going to experience frustration because things don't work. And how can a parent effectively work with their child to take part in understanding what might help instead, come up with new ideas and either avoid or cope with the frustration that inevitably will rise up sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Susan, this is such a hard one because I think emotion, regulating emotions and impulses, in addition to the attention piece, is really the hallmark of what makes ADHD ADHD. And a couple things. I think If it's a frustration or a context that happens again and again, that, first of all, is ripe for change because you'll have many opportunities to practice a different strategy, a different option. But in some cases, depending on what the situation is, we also have to see if the child is ready to change too, because it is not magic and none of these things change overnight. It takes deliberate intention with how we interact with each other and intention in 
changing our habit or what we are doing to become a habit into a more desirable behavior. So I think it's twofold. One is, first of all, acknowledging, is this a behavior that needs to be addressed? And if so, how is my child feeling about it? Do they even see this as a problem? Because if you go into that suggesting things or saying that you need to do this, you need to do this, and your child's like, why? It doesn't matter to me. (laughs) Then you're not going to get anywhere, right? So I think always viewing their perspective of the problem too, or the issue and be like, okay, so every time I ask you to do this, I get really frustrated because it seems like I've told you and you're not paying close attention. And I know that that's probably not the case. It's just not up on your priority list like mine, but it is frustrating. And I'm wondering if we can figure out a way to make it better because when I get frustrated, you get frustrated with me and then we get into this battle of the wills and we start yelling and nobody likes that. And if you get some acknowledgement there and can help your child understand where you're coming from and why you see this as a recurring problem or an issue that needs to be addressed, then at least helping them see your perspective is the first step. The second step is to then see from their perspective, is this a problem for you? Because that's the only way then that they're going to be willing to buy in to make the necessary changes in that situation. I know I'm kind of talking in generalities here. I really think that, again, with behavior change, it's really important to at least get your child and you on the same page and acknowledge that that recurring issue is a problem. And then together, you can collaborate to brainstorm different ways of handling the situation. And then making a plan to come in and check in. Like, how is that going for each of us? Is this working for us? Is this not working for us? So again, through that process, you're modeling essential communication, problem-solving skills, critical thinking, and life skills that they're going to apply, not just to your relationship, but to every relationship they have thereafter. Which is also, it seems to me, modeling self-advocacy when you're explaining to them how you're feeling as a parent. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to tell us about? Yes. I think, as I would just say to parents and to kids, is that having ADHD can be hard. It can be challenging. And I know that. I have ADHD too. And There are so many people out there with ADHD. And again, like I said, it is never an excuse, but my wish for families listening to this is to know that every day is a new day. We need to know who is in our corner. We need to know that we need to lean on each other because ADHD not only affects the individual and especially in the realm of children, tweens, and teens, we know that they don't live alone. So they live in a family. So we know ADHD can affect the whole family, whether you yourself have ADHD as well or not. But we need to really impress to our children that it always starts with connection, communication, and collaboration. And that no matter what life throws our way, We can get through this as long as we're willing and honest to each other, how we're thinking and feeling. And even though we might not have all the answers, we can engage our pediatrician, we can engage the school, we can engage the rest of the people on our team. But ultimately, it is all about making sure that you are thriving in life and reaching your goals because having ADHD does not mean you cannot dream big and reach high. We know that, don't we? So many awesome like things that you can do with ADHD, but we just want to know that our support is always there and we believe in them. So having that space for them, celebrating those wins and coming together in those challenging times too is important. But having ADHD is not good or bad. It just is. And we need to embrace the whole person. 
Thank you so much. I think so many of our parents will find this very helpful. Thank you for the invitation. And it was such a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chad's ADHD 365 podcast. 